Well, good morning. We are in a series called Genesis Beginnings, and the idea here is that the foundational concepts of our beginning and God are found in these 11 chapters. Genesis chapter 1 to 11. The first week in our series, we learned that God is our origin and that our stories are really about Him, and this is so freeing when we encounter this truth. The second week, we looked at uh, the first six days of creation and saw that God is good and he made a world that is good. Last week, we looked at the last half of day six and we saw in there that God, in the pinnacle of his creation, placed his image in humans. He placed his image in mankind and it gives dignity to all people. Today, what we are going to see is we are going to see in Genesis chapter 2 a world that is the way it's supposed to be. Genesis chapter 2 tells us all about a world that is the way things are supposed to be. It's no secret that I'm a huge Cubs fan. Yesterday I enjoyed it once again when the Cubs beat the Cardinals. That brought me great joy. If you're a Cardinals fan, I feel for you. Uh, Although I clearly recognize that the burden of uh, suffering falls on me as a Cubs fan. Anyway, one of my favorite things to do is go to Wrigley Field. I love Wrigley Field. It was built in 1914. It's the second oldest active stadium in Major League Baseball. Uh, The Boston Red Red Sox Fenway Park is just a few years older than Wrigley Field. And one of the cool things about Wrigley Field is that when you go there, up until this year, when they just installed video boards, when you go there, you step into the past and experience a baseball game the way it was supposed to be. There's no in-between inning entertainment. You don't go to Wrigley Field and have musical chairs and big cushions out on the field between innings. You don't have the kiss cam fly up and, and you know, they play kiss me and see who will kiss each other. You don't have get games or sausage races between innings because Baseball, the way it's supposed to be, is between innings, between pitching changes, you are supposed to turn to the person next to you and discuss the game. This is what what you're supposed to be a fan that is knowledgeable enough about the game. And usually if you go to Wrigley Field about the fifth inning, if there has not been a hit given up yet, all of a sudden between innings fans start discussing this. Because most fans recognize that the Cubs have not pitched a no-hitter at Wrigley Field since Milt Pappas did it in 1972. And all of a sudden fans are talking between innings and getting excited. Could this be the first no-hitter at Wrigley Field since 1972? And people are interacting and the, the energy level of the whole place rises. And you just sit there and you think, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is baseball at its finest, the way it's supposed to be. God's desire, friends, when we read in Genesis chapter 2, it's that sort of thing. When you read Genesis chapter 2, you are supposed to, as you read out, you're supposed to cry out, this is the way it's supposed to be. God's desire is to restore things to the way they are supposed to be. In other words, God's saying this. Let me tell you, to the Israelites, as they're walking up, marching from Egypt up to Israel, wandering through the wilderness, getting to know their God, as Moses is introducing them to their God, God is saying through Moses in Genesis chapter 2, let me tell you the way things are supposed to be. And that's what Genesis 2 really does for us. If you read the very first words of Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, that's the beginning of this section, 
we see a word that might be obscured in your English translations, but it's really important. The Hebrew word there is the toledot, and what it simply means are, it might be translated in your Bible, this is the account of, these are the generations of, it might have that kind of flavor to it. Why this is important is because Moses uses this phrase 11 times in Genesis to mark a new section. In other words, for the first time, what God is telling us through Moses here is that I'm going to tell you the story now of the way it's supposed to be. From the creation, from God's creation, all the way through the creation of man and the fall of mankind. This is what he's about to do. And so he sets this up. This is the way it's supposed to be. God's desire is to restore things to Genesis chapter 2, the way things are supposed to be. And we can learn so much about this. So Moses says, let's zoom in on the Garden of Eden and let's see what we notice about the, th the way things are supposed to be. And this is where we start. The first thing we see about the way it's supposed to be is this. The way it's supposed to be is that God is intimately involved in life. God is intimately involved in life. That's the way it's supposed to be. Look at chapter 2. The second half of verse 4. We see this right, right away. We see these are generations. And then it says, When the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub or field had yet appeared on the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprung up, God had set rain on the earth, and all these categories that he talks through, he's going to begin to say, Before all this happened, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, this is really, really cool. If you, in your Bible, sometimes you'll see the word Lord God, and the word Lord will be kind of in, uh, in all caps, small caps. That is a reference to God's specific personal name. This is the first time in Scripture we see this used. We would pronounce that Yahweh, or God's personal name. And we were introduced to this. Uh, Moses was introduced to this name at the burning bush. And you remember in the book of Exodus when Moses walks up to the burning bush and God said to him, I want you to go free my people. One of the things Moses says is, God, I need to know your name because the Israelites aren't going to believe me and they're going to say, who told you? And God said this, my name is Yahweh, which is a verb that means I am who I am. That's a crazy name. I am who I am. In other words, God in a verb is saying, you can't pigeonhole me or put me in a, in a spot to manipulate me because I am active and greater than all this. And this becomes for the Israelites God's personal sacred name. In fact, the Israelites develop all kinds of rules about this name. In fact, they hold this name so special that Israelites are not even allowed in, in, in Jewish tradition to speak this name. In fact, they didn't even want to write the name, so they would take vowel points from the word Lord or Adonai and insert them. And so it would be pronounced, if you were to read it that way, Jehovah, because they didn't want to even write the name. This name is so intimate and sacred and special. This is the name. It is a very personal name, and it shows us the way things are supposed to be is that God is intimately involved in life. Um, when I sign up for things, if I put my name down on something, like if uh, I order a pizza and they want to know my name, or if I sign up for a form or I have to list my name on a website for something, my name is always listed as David Brooks. David is the name for people who don't know me. 
David is my formal name. I like to use that when people don't know me. If someone calls me David, they don't know me that well. Now, for my friends who know me, you can call me Dave. You can call me Pastor Dave. You can call me P. Dave. You can call me P. Diddy. I don't care. There is this sense of intimacy if you know me. But if you really know me, like my wife, she gets to call me things like honey, babe, sir manliness. She may never have actually called me that. But, um, you know, if you're my kids, you get to call me dad or daddy. I tried with them when they were young to get them to call me father with some sort of English accent, but it didn't work. Um, But there's intimacy associated with a name. God is intimately involved in his creation. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, we begin to get a picture of this when we see God walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. The way it's supposed to be is God is intimately involved in life. Now in in, uh, chapter 2 verse 7, we see what God did with this. In chapter 2 verse 7, we see the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And look at this. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. This is cool. And let's just be honest, it might be a little awkward if you were Adam, right? But here's the idea here. This is an incredible act. The the biblical scholar Derek Kidner says this, Breathed is a warmly personal with face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. And the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving as that. God is like very intimately breathing life into Adam. See, that's the way it's supposed to be. God is intimately involved in life. And you need to understand that God's desire is to restore things to the way they're supposed to be. There's a second way that we see here in Genesis chapter 2 that the way it's supposed to be. If the first way is that God is intimately involved in life, the second way is that people, people are joyfully submitted to God. People are joyfully submitted to God. Notice what God places here in the middle of the garden. Notice what he places. Chapter 2, verse 9. And the Lord God, there's his name again, intimately involved, made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now here we have these two trees. Um, This is really fascinating. The first tree is the tree of life, and the origin of this word is interesting. If you were to study ancient Near Eastern culture, the usage of this word suggests that uh, this isn't sort of the holy grail. Like if you grab this tree, it's uh, it's the immortal life that is granted to you. One sip of the holy grail, the legend says, and you would live forever, all eternity. This isn't the Holy Grail. The, the study of the culture more says that this is an ongoing thing, like the fountain of youth more. The idea being here, as long as you continually eat from this tree, life is given. I love how God does this. He places that tree right in the middle, and he says, you can freely eat from this tree. Life is good. God is the one who sustains life. 
Now there's this second tree, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and this is a form of speech, so the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what that is, is that, that's called a figure of speech where you list the two things on the very end, and by doing that, in the very extremes, you include everything in the middle. So what this idea here is that it's not just good or evil, it's all knowledge. And it has to do with discernment. Without this fruit, they lack the ability to discern what is in their own best interest. Look at chapter 2, verse 17, if you have your text out there. God says to them, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, wait a minute. If the tree of knowledge of good and evil includes the extremes of wisdom and discernment and everything in the middle so that people could decide what's right and wrong for themselves, why would God want to withhold this from them? Why would God want this? Well, it's because life works best when the king lays out the best plan. Life works best when the king discerns what is best. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, I'm in this unique position where my oldest is getting ready to go to college and, uh, and my youngest too is uh, not even in preschool yet. And it's this weird mix of life for us. But we're going down this road for the first time and looking about college. And as I talk to all my different kids about college someday, it's, because it's been interesting to compare them to just kids I see out there in general who are getting ready for college. And it's very fascinating. Some kids have this mindset. I just want to go to college, so I'm sure someone will give me a loan, and I will borrow all the money I possibly can, because I'm not going to worry about paying it back. That'll be sometime later. And that sounds good at this side, right? Like, hey, borrow all you can, get to go to college, a college education is important, and I'll have a lot of fun while doing it, and there's really no consequences right now. The good parent looks out in the future and goes, you know, if for four years you borrow about $80,000. That's going to be somewhere around $600 a month for the next 20 years. That's not good. So for a, a student who's saying, hey, I'll just go into all the debt I want, a wise parent says, maybe there's another path. And so a wise parent says, that's not a good idea. So let's figure out how we can save money. Let's figure out how you can work. Let's figure out scholarships. Let's figure out creative ways to do education. A good parent steps in and says, let me help you with this. I have the bigger picture. I paid back my college loans. I know what this is like. A good parent comes in and says, let me help you figure this out. Let me set some parameters for you. And this is no different than what God is doing with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's saying, listen, here it is. In this fruit represents the ability for you to decide what's right on your own. And this will not go well for you you will surely die. God wants to discern because his way is the best. Adam and Eve wrestled this away from God. We're going to see this in chapter 3. They tried to determine their own best interest and they failed miserably. You and I have the same dilemma with God. We say things to God like, God, I know that your way is best, but that doesn't feel good to me right now. We say things like, well, God wants me to be happy, Therefore, he will be about whatever I think makes me happy. We're just wrestling discernment from God. We say things like, well, it's easier to get forgiveness from God than permission. And so we do what we want. We're wrestling the fruit from God. 
But the way it's supposed to work is that people have a freedom to choose obedience. And there is this complete trust in God's ability. There is a sense of surrender here. We say, God, I give up my way, and I will let you discern what's best for me. Um, It's interesting. I'm working right now, uh, getting ready to teach my third kid how to drive. And so uh, I figure in in about two years when I get through my fourth kid, uh, I will be an expert at this, okay? But for right now, here's what I've noticed of of three of my kids that are driving. There's different ways to approach driving. Um, As I instruct my kids, there are two reactions from each kid. There's one reaction when we sit in the car for the very first time. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. One of my kids is sitting in the driver's seat, and I'm sitting there, and I begin to explain things like, what are these pedals on the floor for, <laughs> you know? What's this knob thing you move here? What's this steering wheel do? And that there's two reactions to this explanation. Usually, dad, first reaction, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Tell me what's best. The second reaction, which some of you who have taught kids to drive may have gotten, is, hey, dad, I got it. I'm good. I- I've been watching this for a while. I got it. I'm good. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I got it covered. Which do you think goes better generally? (laughs) The general one is an attitude of submissiveness. Let me learn from what you have to say. This is the way it's supposed to work with God. You and I choose to joyfully do it God's way. The first way is simply that God is intimately involved in our life. That's the way it's supposed to be. The second way is that people are joyfully submitted to God. And now the third way that it's supposed to be, is that people participate in meaningful work. I wish I had more time today to get into this. But this is the coolest, one of the coolest things about this that often gets overlooked. The way it's supposed to be, we see it in Genesis 2, verse 15. Then God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden. Okay, now remember, this is the world the way it's supposed to be. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. This is fascinating. Do you realize that the way it's supposed to be is that you and I are supposed to be contributing in meaningful work to the world? There's emphasis on these words, work and take care of. Work is an important part of life, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Our problem is that we have created this vision of what heaven, which is up there in most of our minds, out there somewhere, someday we'll go to heaven, and in heaven we've just taken a Greek mythological view and transposed it and put it upon the Bible. And that Greek view says we're going to be in diapers and sitting on clouds and strumming hearts and doing nothing. We're going to be doing nothing for all eternity. And I believe it's John Mead that once said to me, that sounds a little like hell to me. And, uh, you know, I think that's right. We were not created to do nothing. We were created to do meaningful work. As those who participate in the restoration of the kingdom of God, did you know that your work matters? If you work at Wells Fargo and you drive to the mothership every day and go in that building and take off your badge and go through security, what you do matters because God created you to work. Now we'll see in chapter 3 why work is miserable sometimes. If you go to your job and, and you know, maybe you drive a, a truck and you're driving a truck for a living, your work matters. I don't know what your job is. Maybe your job is to stay home with kids and raise them and love them. Your work matters. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is so encouraging. 
There's a fourth way it's supposed to be. It's simply this. Husbands and wives have a partnership with a purpose. Nick, you missed three and we're on to four now. Husbands and wives have a partnership with a purpose. The problem here is most people think that marriage is about emotion. Most people think that the way their marriage functions should be primarily about emotion. I feel in love. Now, if we look here at Genesis, it's really interesting. Adam is sitting here. God has created Adam with a work and a purpose, and Adam is starting about this. And as you look at the story here, all these animals are coming in front of Adam, and he's naming them. He's naming them. He's examining what they are. He's examining their purpose, and he's naming them. And he's realizing as these animals are sort of coming in front of him that, wait a minute, these animals are all sort of working with a partner. They're working to create life. But Adam has no one like this. And for the first time in God's creation, we read what God says about this in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. This is fascinating. Every day of creation, as God was creating things, he finished the creation and he said, it's good. It's good. He made animals. It's good. He made plants. It's good. He separated from the land, from the sea. It's good. He created the lights in the sky. It's good. When he got all done with creation, he said, it's good. And this is the first time he says, it's not good. Because God desired something else for Adam. And we read this right there. He desired a suitable helper. This is a fascinating thing. This word suitable helper is so telling about how we function in our lives. Helper does not equal servant or doormat here. We tend to think of a helper as, you know, maybe some uh, servant in the old days of, of England that has a towel over his arm and goes around the house serving everyone else and is told what to do. But that's not this word here. In fact, this word helper in other places in the Hebrew text is used of God himself. God is our helper. So what God is about to do here is to create a woman who is a suitable helper. John Walton, the scholar, has done some great lexical work in the Hebrew here. And his conclusion is this, this phrase, uh, suitable helper, has two distinct parts to it. This phrase, suitable helper, first of all, has the idea of a partner. And secondly, of a counterbalance. So women are going to be created as a counterbalance to men and a partner in this. And if you look at the context of this, why does God do this? God does this, and please don't miss this. God creates woman out of man because of the context of work. Adam is working, doing the work he said. The woman is supposed to come alongside and be a suitable helper so they can achieve the goal that has been set out in front of them. Men and women were created to do work. They had a purpose. Kent Hughes says this, So God declared that help was on the way from one who would both be like and unlike the man, one whose corresponding differences would make man complete for what God intended him to do. And this is why the Apostle Paul would thousands of years later say that the man was not made for woman, but woman for man. 
The woman would make it possible for man to do what he could never do alone. And likewise, for the woman, something very good would fill man's aloneness. Don't you see here? Marriage is supposed to be a partnership, and this is the way that marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be the husbands and wives has a partnership with a purpose. They're working towards a discernible goal. Now, we clearly here have to entertain the discussion on the issue of headship. Because clearly here, what we're going to see in the text is the woman comes out of the man. And Paul makes some really important inferences regarding this role in headships. And there are distinct roles for men and women because of this. Paul tells us that there are roles of spiritual authority that are important. But look here, and what I want you to see today is that when God makes the woman, he makes her out of the rib of man. When God makes the woman, he makes her out of the rib. It says, the Lord God made man fall into, Adam fall into a deep sleep. Verse 22, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to him. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we get this great phrase, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Look here. God made Eve out of Adam's rib for an important reason. The old-time biblical scholar Matthew Henry says it this way. God did not make a woman out of the head of man to rule the man. He did not make her out of the foot of man to be trampled by the man, but he made her out of the side to be a partner with the man. This is beautiful when we come to thinking about what marriage is all about. Marriage is a picture of what is coming, of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Sometimes we make marriage about a lot of other things, but primarily marriage is about a picture between Jesus and the church, how he will lead. How did Jesus lead the church? Jesus led the church by sacrificing everything for her. I mean, it, it's kind of like a dance. I've told this illustration before. Uh, uh, Jeff and Pam uh, a couple years ago took uh, ballroom dancing lessons together, and, uh, and they went there and they did dancing. And then I asked Jeff, I'm like, well, tell me how that works a little bit. And, and Jeff said, well, someone's role is to lead in the dance because if no one leads, it's hard to really accomplish anything. But if no one follows, it equally goes bad. And I said, so as the leader of the ballroom dancing partnership, do you just kind of take her and go? And he says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. He goes, actually, when I lead, I lead with the back of my hand on her back. I don't even know which way my arms are supposed to go. You can see I don't dance. But I lead with the back of my hand on her back. And a gentle tug says, we're going to go this way. A gentle push says, we're going to go this way. And I said, so if she doesn't want to go, does it work? <laughs> he laughs, no, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work well. So it would be in a dance, one leads and one follows. However, it would be silly of Pastor Jeff to, to not say, hey, what, you, what dance move do you want to do next? Or if Pam says, hey, I think we should do this Pam dance move, it would be silly of him to go, I'm not doing that. Right? There's a partnership towards a goal. It's mutual submission. Paul says it this way. Submit to one another, he says, out of reverence for Christ. 
Because there is a picture here of something so much greater than just a man and a woman being in love and married. There's a picture of Jesus in the church. And today, if you're here and you're single, this should give you the greatest hope of all. Because really, this is one of the few things in Genesis 2 that we see that is not carried over into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said when the Sadducees tried to trick him and ask him, uh, you know, if a man has six wives, which one is he going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus says, don't you know? Men and women will be not given in marriage. Why would he say this? Because marriage is a picture of something greater. Jesus and his bride. And in the kingdom, when Jesus returns, when the, in the kingdom in its fullest expression, we'll be married to a bride. The picture has accomplished its purpose. And so if you're single here today, I just want you to know that the way it's supposed to be, it will be. Fully and completely, as we're all married to Jesus. This is beautiful. And when it works, when marriage then here works this way, the whole point of suitable helper is reached. Accomplish the kingdom task that's in front of you. That's the way it's supposed to work. Mutual submission for a purpose. Uh, so as I was writing this message, I, I was thinking about, uh, you know, when's an instance where I got this right? Because I have plenty of instances where I've got this whole thing wrong. And I was laughing, and I was thinking a couple of years ago, uh, I sat down to uh, watch a football game, and my wife came and sat by me, and my daughter came and sat by me, and they said, hey, can we watch something else? And what they wanted to watch was like one of those awful romantic drama medical shows, you know? Just like all the stuff that makes me go, ugh. So I remember a couple years ago sitting down and going, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice for my wife, for my daughter. I'm going to lead in mutual submission. I'm going to get this right. And I remember giving up my football game so we could watch this show. And last night, <laughs> as I'm getting ready, I'm going over my sermon last night, and, uh, and the Iowa game is on. And I'm really very much enjoying the um, Iowa game. And I get to this illustration, and Clarissa sits down next to me, and it's halftime of the Iowa game, and she says, hey, can we watch one of those medical drama girly shows? I'm like, no, we can't watch one of those. No! And I'm looking, and I'm, I, I mean, are you serious? I have to preach this tomorrow. So we watched the medical drama girly show last night. But I got my phone up, and I'm looking at the score, and finally I found out that Marshall Kane kicked a 57-yard field goal to win the game as time ran out. And I said, oh, Clarissa, the Iowa won, kicked a 57-yard field goal. That's incredible. And she says to me, in all innocence, oh, that would have been a good game to watch, huh? <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> I... She was so good. But it was a perfect illustration. It was so much better for me to do that and to see my wife and my daughter sitting there. I taught them at that moment, my daughter, something about the way a man is supposed to treat his family. I taught her in that simple act that you are supposed to lead by sacrificing. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the way it's supposed to work. Mutual submission and partnership towards kingdom work. It's hard, especially when you don't love your spouse. Then it's really hard. Submitted to each other 
and to God becomes really hard. Um, I, I want to ask Stetson and Brianna if they'd come up right now. Um, you need to understand that I have known Stetson and Brianna for a very, very long time. When I was a youth pastor down in Indianola, I met Stetson when he was 14 and a uh, in seventh or eighth grade, and uh, Brianna, I met her not too long after that when she was in junior high, and so I've known these guys for a very long time, uh, and after they married, they landed here in Waukee, and I continue to get to know them because of this. But uh, a while back, I was talking to Brianna and Stetson just kind of about their marriage, and I thought their journey really depicts well what we're talking about and how the way the mutual submission it's supposed to work. And so I guess let me just start this way. Brianna, let me start with you because this story really, really starts with you. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it, like, just tell me if you would, tell me your story and sort of how you came to a point of crisis in your marriage. Sure. To understand um, my point of crisis, you kind of have to understand where it began. Um, when Seth and I started dating in high school, it was as a means of escape from, we both had fairly unhealthy home lives at the time. And so it was more about um, clinging to each other to get out of that situation. Our relationship was not a model relationship. It's not going to be one where we tell our kids, hey, do this. Um, it was really, really unhealthy. And when we went to college, I was a Christian at the time. I had a faith in Jesus. But I kind of put God on the shelf and I said, hey, I believe who you say you are, God. Um, but following you has been crazy, and I'm done for a little bit. I'm just going to not listen to you. And so I lived my life in college um, as a way of not following God, not doing the things that you're supposed to do when you follow God. And uh, we ended up pregnant, Stetson and I did, with with Jaden. I was really overwhelmed with guilt. um, And after talking to our parents, basically they said, hey, when's the wedding? And six weeks later, there was one. Um, The reality is, when I walked down the aisle to Stetson, I wasn't a bride in love with my husband. I did it because I felt like that was the only way to atone for our sins. That was the only way to make what we had done right was to get married. So we did. Um, I never considered divorce as an option. I just didn't think I'd be happy either. So we were married for a full two years. And during that time, I was angry, I was bitter, I was sad, I was upset um, that I felt like I was forced to live this life that I never wanted to live, and it was not good. Externally, I played the happy wife role. Many of you who knew me during those times probably could never tell. Dave couldn't, and he married us. So uh, I I played the happy wife role really well, um, but I was really super angry and bitter, and at some point... Um, I heard God speak to me, and he said, when are you going to let me work in you? When are you going to let me in? When are you going to let me take control again? Because what you have now, how you're living now, that's not me. And I, I want so much more for you than this, than this anger and this bitterness. And that was my point of crisis, and we'd been married for two years, and I went to Stetson, and I told him I didn't love him. So that was, that was hard. So, Stetson, what's it like when your wife comes to you and says, I don't love you? It was kind of the first reaction. Um, So many emotions kind of poured over me. Um, Anger, sadness. Uh, I felt foolish. I felt like I'd been tricked. Um, We had been dating 
um, even longer before we were married. I mean, we're coming up on 10 years of our relationship next year. And so if she could hide those things from this from me, what else could she hide from me is kind of the, the idea. And I had all these thoughts running through my head that were completely unhealthy. Um, and I got to the point of this, these thoughts happen, and this has to stop. We can't, there's no way I can make this right. The only way that this is going to be made right is through God's strength, through God's guidance, not by any amount of determination that I had. Um, I mean, it was, it was a struggle to begin with, but um, we knew we had to rely on, on Christ first and find, find our identity there. So at this point, at this point of crisis, you may not have been able to identify that you said there's, there's a different way this is supposed to be, but that's essentially what you said. What, what did you guys do? Where did you go next? Once you kind of decided, okay, we're at this point of crisis, and where do we go from here? Well, the first thing we had to do was we had to submit to Christ. Um, at that point, I started the Latour de Bible study just to really get to know God. Um, because he, he had to be the foundation of our relationship. We had to basically erase the six years that we had been together and start new. Um, we ha- and we knew that that foundation had to be God. So I, I did Bible studies. I sought out women within our church body for discipleship and mentorship and just said, hey, um, what's it like to be a woman in love? What's it like to be a wife who loves her husband? And so um, our first way of submission was really to Christ. And I'll let you take the rest of it. <laughs> so, yeah, like Brianna said, we, we each had to, to begin submitting to Christ before we could, we could do anything we could do anything else, um, that realization that we had, God had done so much in, in that six years to keep us together, to bring us together, that, um, and we had our vows to God that we needed to honor those, and we needed to um, begin submitting to Christ, and then realizing and seeing who our identity was in Christ, we could see each other for our, um, our strengths and weaknesses, and begin to complement each other rather than either ignoring those or, or fighting against each other. Um, and that mutual submission has, has continued to grow. We've um, you know, been able to um, stay in life groups and really share and, and be challenged by each other and be challenged by um, others in the body. Um, one of the biggest things that we've seen, we've had plenty of struggles in life, jobs and housing and you, you name it. Um, we, we've had the struggles, and it's, it's been good seeing God's strength um, and that submission always carry us through those obstacles and knowing that um, we have been side by side and God has, has united us that way so that we can um, kind of overcome those um, through God's power. So let me ask you one more question here. How did, I mean, you see the benefit now of, of sort of doing things the way they're supposed to be. Um, how did other people, how did being transparent with them in this whole process help you out? Well, a lot of it had to do with the fact that they could understand us. Um, we, those, especially those first few years of marriage, people often mistake, oh, they're honeymooners, they're happy in love. And so when we were able to be open and transparent and say, hey, we're not. Um, and because of that, there were a lot of other sins that we struggled with. And we could go to people and we could say, hey, show us how this is supposed to be. Show us how we're supposed to be. Um, married through Christ, and they were able to see us for us, 
and not this front that we were supposed to be, which really helped them um, be able to guide us better because they understood us better. Yeah, that's great. Guys, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It takes a lot of courage to, to do that. So thank you. Give me a hug right here. <laughs> so that leads us into the last point of the message today. Here's the way it's supposed to be. And this might really freak you out, okay, as I wrap up here with this point. Verse 25 of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now, this could freak you out. I'm not uh, encouraging nudity or public nudity in any way, shape, or form because this is not about clothes, okay? This is not about clothes or the lack of them. What this is clearly about is before Adam and Eve took matters into their own hands and decided to do what they thought was right when they submitted perfectly to God, there was a transparent connection. So at Waukee Community Church, when we talk about um, grace-filled authenticity as one of the values that we hold dear, part of that is transformation and transparency. What we want to do is not just be naked together, but we want to simply be transparent and honest. You can see for Stetson and Brianna how doing that the way it was supposed to be, how wor- that works That's the kingdom of God, because God's desire is to restore things to the way they're supposed to be. What I hope that you get today as we wrap up this message is simply this, a deep longing in your soul for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, my kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here, and it's at hand. And so certainly we recognize that it's not fully here. There's a sense in which the kingdom is fully here when Jesus comes back and puts his feet down and sets up his rule and reign. But right now we have a part of participating in his kingdom work as the kingdom of God comes and sets up shop here in Satan's domain. And as this happens, there is a deep, should be a deep longing in us for us to do it the way God wants for us to submit to him and make things work right. Um, I, I felt a longing like this uh, this summer, uh, and it was simply uh, a, a longing for our family to the work the way it was supposed to. Uh, in July, Clarissa took uh, a bunch of teen moms and mentors off to Young Lives Camp, and she was gone, and I realized that I didn't think I was cut out to do all eight kids for a week in, at home. So I, in my wisdom, which was deeply lacking at the moment, I decided to take uh, five of my kids to Florida. So we packed in the car, and we drove to Florida and hung out at my brother's house. And uh, in, on the way there, like, I just realized that I just realized deeply and crazily how much I missed my wife, uh, because I didn't know how to do all this stuff by myself, and we were trying to pack lunches and get everyone's clothes on them right, and at one point I was in Florida, and I was holding Malachi, and he turned, and he just puked all over me, and uh, at this moment, like, I was like, this family does not function right without my wife, and so we drove home. On the way home, I got the flu, and I, I drove uh, from St. Louis to Des Moines completely sick because Malachi had puked all over me and given it to me. And when we got home, we came home, and Clarissa had got home just a little bit before us, and we walked in the house, and that longing was fulfilled. This is the way it's supposed to work. And in her greatness, she came in, and she just grabbed Malachi, and she started doing her stuff. And it was like, yes, our family works that way. And there is that sort of longing that God has created in us. As we look at Genesis 2, 
There's a longing for this world to work the way that God intended. And that's what we get to be part of. We get to be part of what he's doing. Because someday Jesus really is coming back. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. Submitting to you. Longing for something greater. Longing for things to work the way they're supposed to be. Heavenly Father, we need your help. That song, Lord, I need you, comes to mind for me all the time. So we need your help because we long to joyfully submit to you. Help us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.